The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Last week, if you were here, we started our new study on the Scarlet Thread, which is essentially a study of Christ through the entire Bible. It's a Christ-centered study. And last week, as we introduced this topic, we looked at what Jesus himself said about him being in the Old Testament, and we answered the immediate question a lot of people have, which was, why didn't Jesus come right after the fall, right after the Garden of Eden. Why didn't Jesus Christ come incarnate in Bethlehem or anywhere else to come live the perfect life and die and save us millennium, thousands of years of bad human history? And our answer last week looking at Scripture was God's will involves God's timing which is difficult to fully comprehend given our fallen state. But if that happened, the world that we know wouldn't exist, none of us would exist, and none of us would be in eternity with him. And so we're going to see that played out in more detail through the first three chapters of Genesis, which next week we're going to get to, and it's so big and so important. We're going to do Genesis 1, 2, and 3 over two separate weeks. So you're going to see that question played out a little bit more. This week we're backing up prior to Genesis 1, and we're looking at Christ prior to creation. Now, for some of you, I know up front, this is just going to completely blow your mind because you've never heard this, you've never contemplated this. I'm going to show you a lot of Bible up on your screen this morning. We don't have one normal text like we normally do where we teach through a couple of verses. I'm going to be jumping around because this is so well documented in Scripture. I don't want there to be any doubt in your mind as to the biblical truth of what we're covering. So we're going to be covering some stuff that, granted, at some level is a little bit scientific. At some level, it's a little bit metaphysical in terms of kind of wrapping your brain around stuff like time that doesn't involve mechanics of physics. And so we're going to be dealing with a couple of those, and I'm going to make it as simple as I can. But the bottom line that you need to know as we weave our Bible verses on top of it is there's essentially, over the course of, I'll say the last 2,000 years, two primary views of our reality, right? We live in four dimensions, height, width, depth. That's three, three dimensions we live in. Add time. Time's the fourth dimension. Now, prior to Christ... The Jews and the secular cultures of the day never really thought about time. They knew the seasons. They knew day and night, obviously. They had a lunar calendar, but they really weren't thinking about time. To them, it just always existed. Even with the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture, with the Genesis account in Jewish culture, the scribes and Pharisees and, and wise men of, of Hebrew culture never really commented on time. No one really commented on time until about 400 years after Christ with a guy who's uh, 
estimated looks are up on the screen. We really don't know. But his formal name is Augustine of Hippo. I call him Augie. And Augie is one of my favorite dudes in history because between the end of the disciples, between the death of John when Revelation was written, and let's say the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, this is probably the most important, if not one of the most important guys who've ever lived in terms of what they uh, added to Christian thought. We don't have time to talk about him. I don't have time to teach you all the neat things he, he said and did. But in the early 400s, about 410, 420, he started doing a lot of thinking. He wrote a real famous book called uh, The City of God. I don't recommend you read it because it's really, really deep. If you were a seminary class or a college grad class, I'd have you read it, but you guys don't have to. Uh, but if you read a biography on him, the biography is going to be pretty good because as a 15-second diversion, I love his conversion story. He was brilliant, but he was a hedonistic pagan, and his mama prayed for him. And his mama's prayers, he said later in life, are what led him to be a Christian because his mama came to where he was on the coast of North Africa in this little city called Hippo, and he stood outside of his house where he lived with his girlfriend, and she stood outside the gate and just prayed for him. And that kind of messed him up. But then she didn't just pray. She went and found the smartest guy she could find, who was a guy named Anselm, A-N-S-L-E-M. And he just happened to be the preacher of the local church. And she said, I want to pay you to be a friend to my boy. And he said, lady, I don't want your money, but I'll be a friend. And through mama's prayers and his friend Anselm, he became a Christian and became, I think, the most thought-generating guy of a thousand years. It's amazing what this guy did. And for our study, he had one conclusion you got to know. And his conclusion was, if God created, as Genesis 1, 2, and 3 said, then God exists outside of time. That concept was brand new. No one ever thought about God outside of time. And this concept of time being something that you could be outside of. But Augie said, you can do it. That view permeated the world, Eastern and Western culture, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The problem as the 1700s turned into the 1800s turned into the 1900s is the agnostic and atheist scientist started to look at the idea of creation and the idea of something being outside of time and they had a problem because the scientific method from Sir Isaac Newton said if I've got an effect such as the world such as matter, such as energy, I got to have a cause. And the agnostic scholars couldn't wrap their brain around a cause because the cause, if it's not space aliens, has got to be God. And space aliens don't fit within the scientific methodology because there is no such thing. And so the scientist had to come up with something that today is called the steady state. And the steady state is embodied by this guy. And most people love his story. They love the movie about him. They love reading his books. He is unquestionably one of the greatest minds of, of the last century, uh, on par with probably Einstein. 
but he is an agnostic, and Stephen Hawking has said his devoted life purpose is trying to mathematically and scientifically prove there was never a beginning. Because if there's a steady state where energy's always been here, time's always been here, matter's always been here, then scientifically you don't need a God. The problem is the world can't do that. Because all the scientific research, all the astronomical research, everything goes back to Edwin Hubble, who back in 1923 said there was a big bang. He didn't talk about God. He was a Christian, but Hubble just said there was a big bang, and I can astronomically prove it, and I can mathematically prove it. And then he said there's a question as to how that happened and why that happened. He said, that's for the theologians to resolve, but ever since Hubble, all the agnostics and atheists are trying to say, steady state, it's always been here. So that's the debate in the two views. The biblical perspective we get in Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, we essentially get a picture of a God that has always been here that today we see manifested in what we would call the Trinity. And Psalm 90, that you can go look up later, essentially said, God, you have always existed. Psalm 90 says, before there were mountains, before there was water, before there were people, you were. And the biblical view is that God has always existed God exists outside of time, and our job then is to try to reconcile what does this mean, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, let me say, we're just going to scratch the surface this morning. Over the next couple of months, in about 10 different lessons, we're going to look at different aspects of the Trinity as it's explained in the Old Testament. We're going to hit this pretty big next week in Genesis 1 uh, because uh, the Trinity shows up in literally the first sentence of Genesis. And so we're going to talk about that next week. But I want you to realize that when it comes time to describing both Genesis and the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before Genesis, we want more answers. You look at Genesis and you want a timeline. You want science. You want an explanation. And what the overview I want you to have to this study today and our study in Genesis is that if God gave information to scratch your intellectual curiosity today in 2017, our Bible would have been incomprehensible for 4,000 years. Think about that for a minute. If God gave an answer that satisfied your intellectual curiosity and dealt with Einstein's theory of relativity, dealt with quantum mechanics, dealt with biology, dealt with chemistry, dealt with DNA, prior to the 20th century, your Bible would have been incomprehensible, and there would have been a total rejection of it by all of humanity. So a Bible that is just as meaningful to your inquisitive mind in 2017 has to be life-changing for uneducated Hebrew slaves coming out of Egypt that don't know how to read, don't know how to write, have never had a day of education in their life, and lived 4,000 years before me and you in an antiquated world that couldn't contemplate the stuff we do. So it was life-changing to the children of Israel with Moses. It's life-changing for us today, and it's amazing God could write something that could speak to those diverse audiences across the ages. 
The other thing that's important is that there are questions God's just not going to answer. And doing my research on this, I thought it was really funny because the question that I've asked you or some of the questions uh, have been asked by people throughout the centuries. And the question we're going to tackle today is why did God create? Because the answer to that question, if you get it wrong, means you got a God with some problems. Because if we pass the microphone around and I said to you, why do you think God created, you run the risk that somebody says because he's lonely. Because he needs people to worship him or he wants people to worship him. Or something that describes a lacking of God. He needs something. He wants something, all of which play into a mentality of pride or a lacking of something. So if you don't answer that question properly, you got a messed up theology. So we're going to tackle the question of why did God create before we get to the creation next week. And when asked that exact same question, why did God create? Or better yet, I think the more precise question he got was, what was God doing prior to creation? John Calvin, the guy we talked about last week who lived in the 1600s, had a hilarious answer. His answer in the pulpit when asked that question, what was God doing before creation in Genesis 1? Calvin's answer was making hell for people who ask questions like that. <laughs> Calvin was a funny guy. There's a good answer, and I've uh, tackled it on your outline a little bit. This issue of what was God doing, which you've got to understand of what was God doing is up on the screen. And what God was doing was existing within himself. God was existing within what we call the Trinity or the Godhead. God the Father is eternal. God the Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. So the fellowship the communication, the love, the glory, the righteousness, all the aspects of God's character you could think of existed before creation, and that's what was being done, and all of those things Scripture makes clear were in perfect, uh, perfectness, if that's the right word. But I've given you on your outline a couple of things we're going to work through in about the next uh, 35 minutes before they want us out of here for a luncheon. And I've got a couple of things written down here to understand the love of the Father is where we're going to start and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now on your outline, I wrote eternal love because Scripture says that existed. I'll give you a proof text and I want to explain something. Our proof text I've written down is John 17, 24. This is Jesus praying in front of the disciples when the disciples hear him pray on the eve of the crucifixion. This is the night of the Last Supper. This is the night of the washing of feet. And Jesus prays and John hears him and remembers and Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. And then he adds, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. In other words, Jesus was saying, we've had love. You've loved me. I've loved you before this world existed. 
On your outline, I described it not as love or long-lasting love. I described it as eternal love. And I want you to change your perspective on the biblical word eternal, okay? Because when we use the English word eternal, your brain thinks forward. Your brain thinks about your coming future. Your brain does not think backwards, I want you to think of eternal as outside of time. Eternal is outside of time, and that's tough for us to wrap our brains around. And I'm going to give you a little bit more on this as we go on and see some more Bible verses. But for now, just kind of take an intellectual leap of faith with me and assume that something can exist outside of time. It's going to frame your whole view of the Bible if you'll do this properly. But eternal means outside of time. So Jesus is saying, God the Father's loved me outside of time, meaning it's as wide as your brain can wrap up. All right, now, what was going on there? What you got to understand is that the roles of the Godhead never changed eternally. God the Father was always God the Father. Jesus the Son was always the Son. The Holy Spirit was always the Holy Spirit. As we go through our study, we're going to go a little bit deeper into God the Father in the Old Testament because there's a whole bunch about God the Father. We're going to go a little bit about the Holy Spirit. When we get to the New Testament, we're going to go a lot deeper on the Holy Spirit. But understand their roles had never changed. So since our study is about Jesus, what we've got to understand about him is Jesus' role has always been in service to God the Father. I gave you three different verses because this is a big deal. We're going to start with John 1. Most people know it. You've heard it or most some of you have memorized it. In the beginning was the Word. We're going to end our lesson because that's a huge concept. The Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And this Word was with God. That's Jesus. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That's going to be our starting point next week because the creation in Genesis 1 was done by Jesus Christ. And there's multiple verses that prove that. John 1 is the big one. But this one tells us that Jesus, as the instrument of creation, was in service to the Father. The Father had the plan for what was going to unfold, I'll explain in a minute. Jesus was the instrument for implementing the plan. Philippians 2.5 explains Jesus' role from creation to incarnation, from Genesis to Bethlehem in Matthew 1. Philippians 2 says, Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or in other words, something to be held on to. I'm going to hold on to being God. It says Jesus is willing to let that go. Verse 7, But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made, by God the Father, in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now, that little phrase there, humbled himself, is a really, really important Greek word. And we don't talk about Greek words too much, but if I stop, it's a big deal. Because the English doesn't do a good job here. 
The Greek word there for humbled is kenosis. In English, you'd spell it K-E-N-O-S-I-S. And it's one of the most important words in the entire Bible. Because when we think of humbled, we think of uh, what we do to get humble, right? Not being prideful, showing our manners, not talking about all the neat stuff about our families or our successes. In Greek, it's a totally different word, which is why I'm spending time on this. Kenosis means pouring out of yourself. Pouring out of that which you are for someone else. The verse in Philippians says that's the essence of what Jesus did. He poured out himself, but he poured out himself for God because it says, as it ends in verse 8, even death on a cross. So when Jesus, it says, has the kenosis, he pours himself out. The corollary to that is God the Father poured himself out on the Son. The Holy Spirit poured himself out on the Father and the Son. Jesus poured himself out on the Father and the Spirit. So it's this act of kenosis, of pouring yourself out, giving that which is the essence of what you are and giving it back, which describes the ultimate character of God himself in all the manifestations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this idea of kenosis is a really, really big deal. Third verse, John 15, he's describing the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the counselor comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify from me. So this is describing, once again, this working of the Godhead, that the Holy Spirit is coming from the Father to minister, to, to serve, eternal service to the Father. So we see both Jesus serving the Father, we see the Holy Spirit serving the Father, and at the same time, the Father serving, in a sense, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's this aspect of the Godhead that's hard to wrap our brains around, but it scratches the itch of creation because we know he didn't create because he was lonely. He didn't create because he needed something because they're all taking care of, if need is the right word, by pouring themselves out on the other. So it's tough in human terms to explain that which is not human in God, but we get a little bit of a scratch there. What I've just described to you in five minutes is really deep theological stuff. This is why, I'm not exaggerating, 17 times, 17 times the Apostle Paul describes what I just described to you as a, as a mystery. It's a mystery that's tough to wrap your brain around. And Paul says 17 times, we saw this so that we might learn about the mystery. We heard this so we might learn about the mystery. We know this truth which for ages past has been a mystery. And he describes this mystery that our brain can just barely contemplate the surface of, which Paul, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, says, I can't even wrap my brain around this. But we'll dig a little bit deeper. I'm just giving you the introduction. All right, the second point on your outline is the glory of God. And this is another subject like time where you've got to set aside your predispositions of what you think about glory. Because when most of us think about glory, most of us think like what's up on the screen. I just did a Google search for glory of God and I got about a million images that look just like this. 
right? I used this one because it had the right words on it, but glory of God when you Google it is our middle picture of sunlight or bright light or something like that, and there's a little biblical evidence of that, but I want you to think about it totally different. Biblically, to understand God's glory, you have to understand that glory is the essence of who God is. And I could do an entire lesson on God's glory, and I will go deeper once we get into Exodus when Moses is the first person who sees God's glory. And we're going to do a deeper dive there in Exodus. But God's glory as the essence of who he is, God describes in his name. Yahweh is I am, my essence. Jesus in John multiple times, describes himself as I am. And I'm going to show you that where he was essentially saying, it's the essence of me. It's the essence of my character. It's the essence of my person. So think of glory as the essence of God. It's love. It's righteousness. It's caring. It's intellectual. It's purposeful. It's willful. It's all the different things we could describe about God and his glory is his essence. Now we see some glimpses of that, and I want to give some glimpses of that by giving, also introducing you to a little term here in the Hebrew, because the Hebrew helps us here. The Hebrew word for glory that I'm going to teach you when we get to Exodus is kavod, K-E-V-O-D in English. And kavod is fascinating to me because in Hebrew, kavod means weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. So the Hebrew idea of the glory of God is not light or brilliance or perfection. It's something heavy. To describe kavod, I could describe the kavod of a feather or the kavod of Mount Everest. What has the bigger kavod? Mount Everest, obviously, right? Heavy, heavy weight. So the kavod of something, how big it is, is how they describe God. Something that has weight, something that's real, something that can manifest to you. So it's not a metaphysical term in Hebrew, it's something real. So in the New Testament, we see that play out in a couple of ways. I gave you the cross-reference of John 7.5. John 7.5 is once again a part of Jesus' prayer on the night of the Last Supper and the night of the washing of the feet. And he says, now, O Father, glorify, excuse me, glorify, And now, O Father, glorify you, me, with your own self, with the glory I had with you before the world was. Now, try to wrap your brains around this for just a second. This is Jesus' final prayer before the Garden of Gethsemane, the prayer in front of the disciples to say, guys, learn something from how I'm praying. This is really the Lord's Prayer. And he says... The glory I had with you before the world was. Okay? That can't be light, because light wasn't created with Genesis 1. That can't be righteousness, because there's no unrighteousness to deal with. It's essentially the essence of what was within the Godhead. That love, that pouring out, that kenosis, that caring, the the aspects that we can slightly wrap our brains around, we see Jesus praying for from eternity. 
Hebrews 5 gives a little bit better perspective. Hebrews 5. Who, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews is commenting about everything in the Old Testament, everything we're going to be studying over the next couple of months. And he says, all of these things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain." I wanted to give you this as an introduction to everything coming in the Old Testament because all the stuff we get after the fall, which just seems weird to us, is a manifestation of the glory of God. What we're going to see in the law, what we're going to see in the rituals of worship, what we're going to see in the tabernacle, what we're going to see in the people that are in the tabernacle, what we're going to see in the sacrifices and the Jewish holidays, all of that stuff, I'm going to teach you is related to something in heaven or someone in heaven. Every single one of them. Something in heaven or someone in heaven. And so Hebrews tells us these things, everything in the Old Testament, is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And that's why Moses got punctilious instructions on this many cubits, we'd say inches, and this color and this stone into minute, crazy detail that when you read Leviticus, Exodus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, just make your brain melt because it's just so much minutia. Hebrews says every bit of the minutia is important. And I'm going to teach you all about all the minutia. So you don't have to learn it on your own. So it's really cool. All right. The eternal purpose of God. The eternal purpose of God, I'll give you the shorthand fill in the blank. This is the final exam review question where I'm giving you the answer before I even teach you the class. The eternal purpose of God, the Bible teaches us, is to expand the fellowship, I'll say they, the Godhead, expand the fellowship they had with each other. There's no other purpose. Creation Everything after the fall, Jesus Christ incarnation, the cross, and everything that happens after the cross is to expand the fellowship the Godhead had with each other. C.S. Lewis wrote a really famous book called Mere Christianity. The last two chapters deal with this subject. And C.S. Lewis tackles this and he says... It's the pattern of the Trinity played out in us. In Genesis 1 next week, I'm going to teach you about being created in his likeness. What that means, as you're going to see next week, is the things about you that with a Christian mindset, you might say, that's Christ-like. Your sacrificial love your ability to forgive a wrong, your ability to create, your ability to create life, your ability to create art, your ability to create music, all of those creative things, all of those loving things, all of those good things, I'm going to show you next week and in the weeks to come, are evidence of you being created in the image of God. 
And the reason, one of the reasons the answer is why creation and the eternal purpose of God is to expand the fellowship they had is the plan from Eden, pre-fall, the plan for the end of Revelation, us with him in eternity, is a fellowship with him that it simply expands the fellowship that's already there. It's not because he needed to create. It's not because he needed to be worshipped. It's expanding what's already there because what's there is good before creation. Post-creation, he's going to make it good plus, even better. And so we'll see that play out a little bit. A couple of verses from 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8, 9, I put on your outline. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, Paul writes, but share in suffering the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace. Here's the key which he gave us, me and you, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Some of the translations of this verse translate ages time, before time began. And as we touched on last week, his plan for me and you predates Genesis 1. His plan for you as an individual, his plan that you would be called, that you would respond to the call, that you would accept the call, and you would live a life as a Christian trying to be more Christ-like, this verse and others says, was established in God's plan before Genesis 1. That's mind-numbing. That's incredible. And there's more. Ephesians 1, 4 through 10, I've compacted it a little bit. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus himself according to the kind uh, intention of his will, the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestows upon us in the beloved, that's Jesus, in all wisdom and insight. I jump to verse 9. He made us known to the mystery, that's one of the 17 I told you about a minute ago, to the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, that's Jesus, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. In other words, that saying Bethlehem was exactly when God wanted it. Not early, not later, exactly then. And as I mentioned last week, that's the greatest Bible study you've, you've ever heard about the blank piece of paper between the end of Malachi and the first of, of Matthew. We'll get there in a few months. Uh, the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. So this is, he chose us before the beginning of the world, and the plan for all time was Christ on a cross at the exact moment he intended. Never ever view the Old Testament as plan A and the New Testament as plan B because plan A didn't work. This is saying everything in the Old Testament is intentionally leading up to the cross and was intentional. That circles us back to last week about why so many thousands of years of a mystery. We'll try to explain some of that as we go on, but it is a mystery. Then, last verse in this section, Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. To me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all the saints. In other words, I'm the worst Christian who ever lived, is what Paul's saying here. 
grace was given so that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That's number two of the 17. From which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. That's that inference earlier that we saw in John 1 of Jesus did the creation to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, to the principalities and the powers, in other words, all the governments, and in all the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, remember the definition of eternal. It's outside of time. This is one of the clearest teachings ever that the cross of Jesus Christ was the plan of God the Father before Genesis 1. Think about that for a minute. Jesus knows, or God knows, there's going to be a fall in Adam and Eve. He creates anyway. God knows sin is going to be so rampant, he's going to obliterate the planet Earth in a flood, only saving Noah and his family. He knows all of the millennium of human misery leading up to Bethlehem and then the millennium of misery following Bethlehem. And you think, wow, what an amazing concept that God would still deal with human history in this matter. And as we go forward and deal with the Old Testament and sin in the Old Testament and disease and death and murder and all the bad stuff, we're going to tackle this issue about how can God possibly have this as his eternal plan, and it's truly mind-blowing. So here we see the eternal uh, purpose of God, and the, the, the conclusion I want you to draw here is the Bible does not let us view history as an accident. You can't view history as human beings just doing what they do and God reacts. You cannot view human history as just a never-ending cycle and circle. That's what the agnostics like to say because it assumes there's no God. If you view human history as no matter how bad it is, a part of the purpose and will of God, then it totally changes your view of human emotion, human history, human psychology, and everything about it. And we're going to tackle this as we get a little bit deeper in the course, but it's clear from Scripture, history is not an accident. All right, next point, God existing both in and outside of time. I want to stop before we get to the truth of this concept and have you look at time a little bit differently. I introduced this about 10 minutes ago. It's the concept of God going back to Augustine existing outside of time. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis illustrates it like this. He says, imagine you got a piece of paper and a pencil and you draw a line across that piece of paper. He says, envision God as the piece of paper and the line as time and human history on that line. When I first read that, I loved C.S. Lewis since I was a kid, love him even more now as an adult, but my thought was the imagery didn't quite work because it wasn't three or four dimensional, right? So in my mind, I've always envisioned not a line on a piece of paper, but a room and a tube full of something. A tube full of liquid. Imagine this room. Time and our four-dimensional universe is like what's on the inside of that tube. Imagine it goes from that wall to that wall. And that line, that tube is human history. Think of God standing outside of that. 
standing outside of that, that means I can see the beginning of the tube, the middle of the tube, and the future of the tube, or the end of the tube, all in my present, right? All as I exist. To God, there's not a past, there's not a future. To God, it is, okay? So your past and your future in God is present reality. Our brains have trouble with that because we're inside the tube. Inside the tube, we got stuff behind us, we got stuff in front of us, and inside the tube, we can't see what's coming. But we know to be with God is to be outside of the tube. Now, let me give you some verses, and I'm going to give you some mind-shattering implications of the tube, okay? Number one, Revelation chapter one. John is writing. And he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you and him who is and who was and who is to come. And then it quotes Jesus in verse 8 where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In Greek that says, I'm the beginning, I'm at the front of the tube, and I'm the Omega at the end of the tube, says the Lord God. And then it repeats, Jesus says, who is now, who was in your past, and who is to come, the Almighty. That description in Revelation is the biblical view of my tube saying Jesus Christ is at the beginning of it, at the end of it, and in the present of it, the is now, and to him as the Almighty, it's all present. John, writing in his gospel, quoting Jesus, says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 28, so Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now, when you read that verse, I've got up there in English from the NIV and the New American Standard. I think that's actually the New American Standard, but I checked and both are exactly the same. They add the word that I italicized because it makes good English, but it detracts from the accuracy of the theology. What Jesus said in the Greek is, you believe that I am, i.e., same name in the Old Testament for Yahweh, same way God described himself to Moses in the desert, I am. He repeats it in verse 28, then you will know that I am. That phrase is a name that is intended to transcribe all of time. Jesus outside of time. Two implications on this. Number one, it's the reason why Old Testament salvation is the same as New Testament salvation. When we get to Abraham in about four weeks, I will show you that Abraham was saved just like me and you. And your question is, Chris, how in the world is that possible when Jesus doesn't die on the cross for two millennium after Abraham? And the answer is, if you're outside the tube, past, present, future are all present. So in the mind of God, the crucifixion has already taken place. Jesus' obedience has already taken place if you're outside the tube. So Old Testament salvation is based on the coming Messiah, the coming crucifixion, and the faith in that coming crucifixion, just like our faith going backwards is based on the exact same thing Abraham was. Outside the tube, it's all present. Number two, it's a perception of heaven. 
We're going to get to this later on when we discuss heaven, but the concept here is heaven is outside of time. When your great-grandparents, if they were Christians, your grandparents and your parents went to heaven, they didn't find someone waiting for them. Your view of heaven cannot have a concept of time because God exists outside of time, so heaven exists outside of time, and no one is waiting on you in heaven. Your grandparents weren't waiting on their kids or happy to see their family. I believe when we get to heaven, everybody shows up in a human sense at the same time because there is no time. Heaven exists outside of time, so everyone is with God the Father at the same time. There's no waiting. Remember, we're here in the tube. But with God, there's no waiting. There's no passage of time. So when we get there, Abraham doesn't say, let me tell you what we've been doing for the last couple of thousand years. Because in heaven, there ain't no past couple of thousand years. Now, folks, that's mind-boggling. I've just warped your brain. But that's God. God doesn't exist outside or doesn't exist in the tube. God exists outside of the tube. So the peace we ought to have is our future is no big deal to God, just like our past is no big deal to God, because it's already happened. There's implications in our sin. I deal with a lot of guys that I have breakfast with that are broken because of what they've done in the past. I mean, just shattered. And I don't try to teach them this time issue, but I try to tell them there's no surprise to God. He called you before that sin, knowing there was going to be that sin. There's no surprise to God, and he called you, he loved you, he forgave you. The only question is, what's your relationship going to be with him like? Likewise, somebody who's struggling with a sin today and says, I can't minister. I had breakfast with a guy this week that was a pastor that left his church because of an affair he had with his wife, and he said, I can't minister ever again. And I said, you're right, you can't pastor ever again. You forfeited that right, but who says you can't minister again? I said, buddy, you're in a position to minister better now than you ever have in your whole life because for the first time in your life, you get it. You get sin, you get forgiveness, you get redemption, and you're not going to be a pastor of a church. Whatever you're doing, your ministry just got started. And he bawled his eyes out because that concept had never occurred to him, but the basis of that concept is a guy, a God that lives and functions outside of the tube. So this concept of a God outside of time is life-changing. Last couple of minutes I've got, the eternal cross. The eternal cross, I've given you three verses on. Uh, I don't have time to go through all of them, but 1 Colossians chapter 1 makes it very clear that all of these things was ordained by God, the Father, on a timeline that involved Jesus Christ in the middle of that tube that involved the cross of Christ when he ordained it. The book of Revelation says everyone is going to worship him and their names who are going to spend eternity with him have been written down. Your name, individual names have been written in the book of life before Genesis chapter 1. 
That's pretty amazing to me that God knew my name and knew your name and wrote it in the book of life before Genesis 1, and that's Revelation 13. Romans chapter 16 is also powerful because Romans chapter 16 says we might not understand this mystery, but all of this is done so that the whole world, the Gentiles, in addition to the Jews, might know Jesus Christ as Lord. And Paul ends probably the greatest book in the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, in terms of theology on that point that the timing of God was for the most number of people to know him and know his will. I want to end on this idea of the preexistent logos. This is John chapter 1. And I end on this because I want to explain this as an introduction next week to Genesis because John 1 is a better way to start Genesis than Genesis chapter 1. Because it takes this Greek idea of logos or logos, which I want to introduce you to. For five centuries before Jesus Christ, five centuries, the Greeks needed a way to explain the order of everything. The order of the seasons, the order of the human body, the order of the earth, the order of the stars, and in a pagan culture that had the Greek gods that were as sinful as humans, they couldn't do that except philosophically. And the philosophical idea of Logos was an order, a meaning, a structure of all that exists. And for five centuries, the Greeks would have this metaphysical idea of Logos that says there's something we don't understand holding it all together. The earth-shattering introduction to John 1 is telling to all the Greeks, that Logos thing you guys have been thinking about for five centuries is Jesus Christ. And he describes that which holds everything together, going back to Genesis 1, as Jesus Christ. If you think about the other words, uh, the other uh, translations of Logos, in, in John 1, it's the word. That was always weird, because in English that doesn't make sense, because a word's a word. Other translations are principle, story, wisdom. They're concepts other than our idea of a single word that we can then describe as Christ before Genesis 1 and in Genesis. And the conclusion I've got for you on these points is really twofold. As we will see next week, if there is a creation, there has got to be a creator. And if there's not another explanation for everything that exists other than the Big Bang, then there's got to be a creator. I think the greatest evangelical traction you have with anybody in the world is in Genesis chapter 1. Because they're never going to get to the Gospels if they can't get through Genesis chapter 1. So you really, really, really need to be here for the next two weeks because there's a lot of stuff people will mess you up with on Genesis that if you can't answer their questions, you can't tell them the gospel because they're still hung up on Genesis chapter 1. So you've got to know Genesis chapter 1 to tell them about Jesus Christ. So if you come next week, I'll tell you about that. Number two, your challenge for the week. Your challenge for the week is to think about what do you do to express the likeness of God in creativity. 
as you're going to see, you saw a little bit of an introduction this week, and as you're going to see a lot about it next week in creation, the God of heaven is a God of creativity. One of the ways that, that his likeness manifests in us is how we are creative. I talked to a buddy of mine this week that specializes in psychological services for the elderly like primarily works in uh, uh, assisted care facilities and hospice and things like that. And I called him to get a kind of check on this point. And I said, what's the creativity like in most people you deal with? And without hesitation, he said, absolutely zero. And I said, I've got a theory that the most creative in our culture are our kids. And he said, oh yeah, imaginary friends, the worlds they create to play in, the imaginary families for the girls, the imaginary kingdoms for the boys. It's all about creativity. As adults, it primarily manifests in art and music and writing things and other ways that are creative. And I said, I told my buddy what I was going to be teaching this week, and I said, I got a challenge to people. If you want to know how close are you to living or dying, ask, what am I doing this week? Uh, to be creative. What am I doing this week that reflects the image of God with which I was built to be creative? Now, admittedly, I'm not an artist. I'm not a musician. I write. I teach. There's an aspect of creativity to that because i got to figure out how I'm going to teach you every week. But your challenge for the week is to think about that creativity issue because I'm convinced in studying these lessons one of the greatest images of God that we have is our creativity. So my question is, how close to that image are you by creative? Are you just living life and going through the motions and there's no creativity? I think God wants you to be more creative because that's how you're going to express the essence of him in you. I'll apply that a little more next week. That's just your homework. If you've got questions, come talk to me later. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to study something that just seems beyond our brains. But you gave us enough in Scripture to know that it's true, and we've got to know it, and we've got to understand it, and we've got to appreciate it. So thank you for the chance this morning to come and try to tackle that mystery that you've said so many times is a mystery that you will give to us as we pray for it and ask for it and as more time goes on, ultimately fulfilled in our time with you in heaven. And we just thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for that privilege. We love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And we ask you to protect us until we can come back here together next week. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. Next week, Christ in creation, Genesis chapter 1. I'll see you then. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.